1: It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing with the series of the book authored by Don Endovolson called The Kingdom. From creation to the millennium, and uh, last week we had begun a new chapter, chapter number uh, twenty-two, which was entitled "War in the Heavens." And in essence, just to, for a real c- quick review, um, the author talks about this what he calls a divine council that. St- one sees in Psalm 82, um, and um, who consist, who are the members of this divine council? And we basically um, finished off last week by saying, uh, at the top of this council and, and the entity that's presiding over this divine council is, of course, Yahweh, the uncreated Creator, Father God, Uh, He is the one true God, and um, but this reality, uh, according to the author, doesn't prevent or preclude the recognition of other entities in Old Testaments, in the Old Testament known as gods with a little G. Um, We pointed out last week that they are distinguished from the Father by the fact that they were all created. And God himself is the only eternal, immortal being who is above all. And so he's in the first tier of this hierarchy of the divine council in Psalm 82. The second tier is composed of this so-called divine council, referred to as the sons of God because of the um, Hebrew word, using um, bene ha Elohim, um, sons of God. Elohim um, is a word which is in the plural form but can be used in a singular uh, context as well. And that's why there's a little bit of ambiguity as to who these sons of God were and are. Um, uh, We also pointed out that there was a reference to... um, the fact that this council was given authority uh, to run some governmental affairs over nations, and uh, many experts weigh in and say, well, based on Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, uh, when God gave nations for the inheritance of the council, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. And the nations back then... uh, totaled about 70. And so it was generally believed that there were originally 70 nations based on the list also that was given in Genesis uh, chapter 10. So um, we went over the fact that the lowest tier um, is the what is called the Malachim messengers, if you will, um, and these were angels. Uh, they were to perform a variety of functions appropriate for spirits created to be servants, as we saw in the previous chapter that all angels um, per Hebrews, uh, and let me find that reference there. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14, it talks about uh, all, Angels function or have a job description, if you will, of being ministering spirits to those who would um, inherit eternal life. And so we are spending some time in this because it's important that we understand how the hierarchy behind the curtain, so to speak, oper- operates. Um, The author says um, the implication of Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, where God assigns or assigned a nation to each of the members of the divine council. And of course, the author's paraphrasing here, where he says, It's as if God was telling this members, the members of the divine council, okay, you want to be gods with a little g, let's see how well you do. Um, each of you take a nation and try to rule it. Go ahead. And of course, the author pointed out the only exception to that group of uh, nations was Israel, which he reserved for himself. Um, And he gave care of that over to his and for his chosen people to an uh, archangel named Michael, who was going to do the bidding of Father God. And... So as we move forward, and where we left off was that who are these members of this divine council? And the reference uh, to gods with a little g, uh, or sons of the Most High, um, basically the discussion that was going on in Psalm 82 was, Father God was not happy how they were carrying out their function, and he reminded them, these members of the divine council, these sons um, these sons of God, sons of the Most High, basically saying, quote, You are God, sons of the Most High, all of you, nevertheless like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. That's in verses uh, 6 and 7 of Psalm 82. And... Uh, then he gives a hint of the eventual outcome, declaring that he would—he being Father God—would take back what they had earlier mishandled. And in verse eight, it says, "Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations." So that's pretty much where we had left off, and where we're picking it up this week is the author indicating that one of the most vivid depictions of the war and in the spirit world and don't forget the name of this chapter it's called War in the Heavens and the author says one of the most vivid uh, depictions of this war in the spirit world highlights the attachment of the sons of God to specific nations and in the book of Daniel the sons of God are designated by the title Prince the Hebrew word Sar S-A-R or chief prince, Hassar Hagadol, equivalent to the New Testament, are you ready for this? Archangel, archangelos in Greek. And so Daniel had a vision that had greatly disturbed him. And based on that, he began to fast in order to understand the significance or the meaning of the vision. And after three weeks, according to the author, an angel appeared and began speaking to Daniel. And we see that in Daniel chapter 10, beginning with verse 5 all the way through verse 9. The angel paints a picture of what was happening behind the scenes. And so in Daniel chapter 10, focusing on 12, verse 12 through 13, the author points out this is what was said by uh, the angel. To Daniel. He said, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, One of the chief princes came to help me, for I was there with the kings of Persia. Now, the author points out near the end of the chapter, the same angel also refers to another prince, the prince of Greece, who would come. Um, The only one who contended at his side against them, though, was Michael, the archangel, your prince. So, the author points out a subtle but important aspect of this story is the interplay between the prophet Daniel and the warfare going on in the heavens. The answer to Daniel's prayer was dispatched the moment Daniel started to pray, but it took three weeks for the messenger to break through the opposition. One wonders what would have happened, according to the author. If Daniel had quit fasting and praying on day 20, he didn't. He stayed with it for 21 days. And the author, in the next paragraph, sums it up as following, as follows: Angelic beings, whether they are the sons of God, that's the reference to them, or even lesser angels, were limited, or, I'm sorry, were created." were created with limited authority. They derive the ability to exercise their power, this is important, from the authority of the human beings whom they serve. In the case of the Prince of Persia, that authority came from Persia itself. And he points out that Neither the people of Persia nor the people of Greece had really any great love for Father God's rule, the God of Israel, and their princes reflected that. They were able to withstand the angel dispatched to Daniel for three weeks. So when we see term of of prince, it's oftentimes referring to that of status of an archangel. So what turned the tide, he's asking the question now, what turned the tide against the resistors of this angel that had been sent to help Daniel with the interpretation of his dream? What turned the tide against them was the proactive exercise of Daniel's authority as a human being. Daniel began to pray earnestly and began to fast. And in response to that, Michael the archangel steps into the fray. That's something that he couldn't necessarily do arbitrarily. It's indicated by his inability to help Israel in Daniel 12.1. I'm not going to go into that right now. I want to stay on this um, theme that angels respond. They have way more authority than humans. We discussed that um, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm sorry, they have way more power. I misspoke there. They have way more power than do humans, but they have very little authority in the kingdom realm. To contrast, humans have way more authority than do the angels, but they have very little power. So going back to the context of what we're talking about, it was the rebellion of the people of Persia and Greece that prevented the archangel from assisting Daniel until the rebellion had been dealt with in a time of trouble. The biblical evidence suggests that at some point, this divine counsel that we've been talking about in Psalm 82 actually rebelled against God. And in this context, one in particular rose to prominence, prominence, and this spirit was known as Satan. He pursued Um, Let's see, he he sought dominance over the earth by any means he could, and uh, most of the Old Testament references attach a definite article in front of his title, if you will, making him the Satan, and uh, basically Satan uh, means adversary. So he was the adversary of mankind and against God and against God's loyal angels, in time, um, his title was used and became his name. He is also identified in the New Testament, according to Ephesians two, 2 uh, as a prince, specifically, "quote the prince of the power of the air." When Paul wrote Ephesians chapter two verse two, now notice again the word title of prince comes up, but it's in reference to a higher level or tier of hierarchy in the angelic kingdom. So, according to the author, Satan conducted a remarkable PR campaign, public relations campaign over the centuries. Though Satan himself was a created being as an angel, and therefore he was greatly inferior. To the Creator God who made him, um, he presented himself to be in opposition to God in every area. Remarkably, and for example, humanity has almost universally come to view Satan as the opposite of God. Examples would be God is light, Satan is darkness, God is good, Satan is bad, God is love, Satan is hate. But this image, according to the author, suggests an equality between God and Satan like opposite ends of a spectrum, like a yin and yang, or complementary forces in a perfectly balanced dualism. The author goes on to quickly point out, in fact, nothing could be further from the truth. Satan happens to be a created being just as all of the, quote, sons of God in this divine council happen to be. And therefore, Satan is not even in the same class as God. The only time Satan is portrayed in a conflict with another heavenly being is in Revelation 12, verse 7. And it's not God that he's opposing. It's rather Michael the archangel, in Revelation 12, verse 7, the author goes on to point out this is not to say that he does not wield great power um, as a prince. I'm Again, using that reference back to Ephesians 2, 2, prince of the power of the air. That's the, one of the titles that he has, according to the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. He does wield great power. In fact, all angelic beings, listen to what the author is saying, all angelic beings, according to Scripture, do wield this power. But, also like every other angelic being, according to the rules of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, Satan himself was also created to be a servant of, spirit to the heirs of salvation. Go back and read that verse uh, for yourselves um, during the break. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. And as such, he, Satan, this is important, has only the authority that he has convinced human beings to give over to him. I'm going to look up Hebrews um, chapter 1, verse 14 here real quick and see. I think it's important that we um, get the context of this. Here we are. Hebrews one fourteen. Actually, let's do one, um, 13 to get some context here. In verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 1, it says, But to which of the angels has he ever said? That's capitalized, and so it's talking about Father God. I'll I'll read it again. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? That's a question mark. And here in verse 14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth, to minister for those who will inherit salvation well who is that it's not other angels it's mankind that's all angels have that job description as pointed out in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 but again as we had pointed out in earlier shows angels have a lot of power virtually Unlimited, virtually unlimited, but they only have a very little amount of authority. And correspondingly, it's mankind who has virtual complete authority over the dominion of the affairs on earth, but they also have very little actual power. And so the point that the author is trying to make is, Satan has only the authority, because God would not give rebellious fallen angels any authority directly from God, and they need authority in order to operate in the earthly realm to use their power. They can't function with their power unless they tap into legal permission from someone who has authority uh, to operate. Their power is of no force and effect unless they combine that with someone or some yeah, someone's authority. Well, that authority is never going to come from God. But let me pick it up here. Satan has only the authority he has convinced human beings to give him. And as we see in the Garden of Eden, Satan's deception accomplished that. Adam and Eve chose to believe the suggestions against the nature and character of God, and what was being proposed by this fallen prince, this fallen archangel, was that Adam and Eve unfortunately believed the deception, the fraud, the falsehood, about the nature and character of God. Of course, Satan was trying to put doubts in Eve's mind, saying, oh, he gave you all this authority, but he's holding out on you because he doesn't want you to eat of this particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would ever that be? Did God really say? Of course, look, notice how he's posing these questions to, uh, to penetrate her thinking and to affect her imagination, and basically saying God's a liar, or he's fearful of you, Eve, or hey, he's jealous of you because he knows when you eat of that fruit, you'll be just like God. And the sad thing is, is that Eve was already in God's likeness. Um, But unfortunately, Adam and Eve, we know the story in Genesis chapter 3, they chose to reject Father God. As king, that's what the bottom line was when they um, acted on Satan's suggest- suggestions, and the aftermath gave the serpent now, listen a measure of authority. Where did he get it from? Satan didn't get authority from God, but he got his authority from someone who legally earlier did have authority. And so the author points out it's noteworthy that when he offered to Jesus in Luke chapter 4 in the second temptation of Christ out in the desert, it's noteworthy that Satan offers to Jesus. He doesn't show him at heaven as the big prize. What he shows him is the world and the nations or the kingdoms of the world. That is interesting because here are these two power centers, you know, Jesus Christ, who's restoring the kingdom, that's why he came to restore everything that was in Ge- Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and Satan, and look what they're fighting over. They're not fighting over heaven. They're fighting over who's going to rule and reign the earth and who's going to inherit the nations and inherit the earth. And what's interesting here that the author points out, Jesus did not dispute Satan's right to make that claim that he had the authority to offer those kingdoms to Jesus in the world of the world if only Jesus would fall and worship him, fall down and worship him. And it's fascinating that Jesus did not um, dispute Satan's right to do so. He got authority from somewhere, from someone. And the author points out Satan could justifiably claim, as, it, as he did to Jesus, it has been delivered to me, it being the authority. Well, where did he get it from in Luke 4, verses 5 through 6? How can he say that to Jesus? And the author says it was earlier delivered to him by Adam and Eve. So, Jesus recognized that the redemptive plan of Father God was set in motion, and it was to culminate in his death on the cross and resurrection, which would allow human beings to res- listen to resume their earlier standing and to begin to deny authority that had been previously, by Adam and Eve, been granted to Satan. In other words, taking back, taking back the authority that had been given away based on deception, based on fraud. But that was the activator that Satan required to function in the earth. He had residual power, but in order to have that power be effective in the earthly realm, he needed dominion, the legal permission the legal authority to have dominion on the earth, and he had to get it from somebody who legally received it. We will continue with this when we get back at the end of the break. God bless. Welcome back. Saints of San Diego. We are continuing on with this um, study of the kingdom from creation to the millennium by Don Endevolson, and we are in a chapter called War in the Heavens. Um, I want to read to you, I'm going to jump ahead here, and we will come back to this, kind of a little summary of how this whole war in the heavens shapes up. And it's made in the next chapter, um, called chapter 23, for a thousand years. And I want to just read a couple of paragraphs straight from the book um, on how this sets up, uh, how we're going to conclude the War in the Heavens chapter. But listen to this. In the vision of John the Apostle, talking about um, the book of Revelation, uh, War in the Heavens between the angels, is portrayed as a conflict between two hosts of angelic warriors. A host is basically an army. Uh, One of these hosts or armies is led by the dragon, Satan, and the other is led by the archangel, Michael. You see that in uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, of course authored by... John the Apostle, and um, the dragon in Revelations 12 verse 4 sweeps a third of the stars or angels from heaven down to the earth. And the author says, but this is a cosmic conflict. It's a spiritual war, implying by definition that the participants of this involve spiritual beings, what Paul called in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Listen to what Paul calls them rulers, authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And the author goes on to make a. Uh, a comparison saying humanity, however, was unavoidably caught up in the fray between these two conflicting angelic hosts or armies. So unavoidably, we got caught up in this. How would that happen? Well, given the dynamics of Father God's original plan for creation— with its distinction between the authority invested in human beings to have dominion over the earth, to rule and reign, um, everything in and around and through the earth, and contrasted with the power inherent in angels. It could not be otherwise that man would avoid not getting involved in this conflict. Man was given the authority, the legal permission to have dominion. But Satan, with his motivations and his quests, Satan needed authority for his rebellion. And that could only come from someone who already legally had it, man, mankind. Satan could not force human beings to do anything. But if he could deceive and and entice humanity into submitting themselves to his influence, his being Satan's influence, Satan could obtain authority through man's own rebellion after man decided that God wasn't going to be king. Man was to be king over the earth. So in essence, Satan usurped mankind's authority over earth through influence and temptation, and might I say, and suggestions about the nature and character of who Father God was. So with Father God being now rejected as king, man needed power to bolster his claims for dominion. And that could only come from rebellious angels. In other words, who had the power? Well, the angels had the power, but man, now that he rejected God as king, um, he still had the authority to influence the things on earth. But unfortunately, that was misdirected authority. And now he craves power. He's lost his purpose when he rejects God as king. Don't forget, we studied way back when in the beginning of this series, man's purpose was to receive a vertical download of the likeness of God, where God actually inhabits man, occupies man, and then to subsequently do a horizontal reflection of God's image out to the creation. That was man's purpose. Well, man loses his purpose when he basically believes the lies of Satan, joins the spiritual rebellion against God, and then says, I am king as man. So... And it's interesting that now man's pursuit is not to have his godly purpose in effect, but rather his perverted purpose, which is a quest for power. we studied that over the last couple of weeks. So man is drawn to power as a substitute for his divine purpose. And man becomes vulnerable now to any temptation— that promises control. The result was a state of war in which mankind, listen to this, was simultaneously the prize, the battleground, the battle over the mind, over the mind of man, over his thought life, and The man is not just the prize and not just the background or the battleground, but he's also the principal combatant of either for the rulership of God as king or against the rulership of God as king. Which side man takes is determined by his willingness to submit to the will of God, to submit to God's domain or God's reign, Or do the opposite, to resist it. And the choice that man makes determines whether he lends his authority as a human being, listen to this, this is important, to Satan or to Michael the archangel. They're both angels. They both have power. But they're both dependent on who man is going to lend his authority to as a human being. Again, Father God gave dominion and authority to human beings to rule and reign the earth. And here's Satan and Michael the archangel waiting to see which way man is going to lend his authority. They both need it in order to um, be able to release their angelic power. So let's go back to finish up this chapter of the war in heavens. So, the me- listen, this is important. The means by which heavenly warfare is ultimately worked out, ultimately resolved, this is important to, to note, is not through the power of the good angels or or the angels of Michael overcoming the power of bad angels or rebellious angels following Satan. That's really important. Listen to this. Rather, the way heavenly warfare is ultimately resolved between these two armies of battling angels is by the people of God's kingdom. Listen to this submitting their authority or their legal permission, if you will, to the direction of their king, Father God, and and Jesus, the Messiah, and thereby, listen listen to the cause of an effect here, what happens, this is what you call spiritual science, cause and effect, when they submit their authority to the direction of their king, Father God, and Jesus the Messiah. And what happens is they thereby authorize the angelic armies of Michael, the archangel, to triumph. While at the same time, the angelic the f- uh, armies of the fallen angels of Satan, they're denying any authority by which to act to be handed over to Satan. They're saying, you are shut down because you will not get any authority from us as loyal members of humankind to Father God's blueprint, to his only begotten son who died on our behalf so that we could come back to the Father and reestablish our authority over our inheritance of earth. And it's a matter of which army of angels is going to prevail. They're waiting to see what man's going to do with the authority that was delegated to him from God in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis and redelegated by the Son of God in Luke chapter 10 when he. Jesus sends out the 70, and Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sends out the 12. You've got to go back and read those to understand this. So the author goes on to say in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 12, shows how this battle between the, uh, the opposing angelic armies is played out. Satan is identified as the great dragon that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, and he's the deceiver of the whole world. That's Revelations 12, verse, verse 9. Now note this. This is important. Satan's primary means of gaining authority over humanity is through accusation. By going before the court of heaven and basically accusing man that, there are, that they are in rebellion against Father God and his blueprint and against his son, Jesus, the Messiah, that they're in rebellion against God as much as he is, he being Satan. And therefore, he's called the accuser of the brethren or the accuser of our brothers. And we see that in Revelation 12, verse 10. He accuses mankind uh, day and night before the throne of God. And that's how Satan gets authority over humanity is when we agree with anything that Satan proposes, with anything that Satan suggests to us. And this is where the whole battle of the mind and the warfare that takes place in the human mind takes place. Satan is so good at making us think that thoughts that we have are pretty much exclusively originating with us, that these are our thoughts, our own thoughts, and that they're neutral and they're innocuous and they really don't have any sort of earth-shaking thoughts, but but the fact is, much of our thought life uh, comes from the outside suggestions that we allow in to our mind. In other words, we don't have any Holy Spirit filter by which we are pushing the remote control button and saying, "Hey, wait!" You know, just like you would with a watching a DVD at home when you push that pause button. We have a tremendous amount of of authority and control of what we let in that to influence us in our thought life and it's so interesting when people say oh yes i you know i I was saved at at, you know at this rally and i was born again and i've given my life over to jesus to be my lord and savior and you know etc 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 and then you ask them when you handed over your life to jesus as your lord and savior did did that include your thought life all the thoughts of your thought life and most people will give you that kind of shell-shocked stunned look because that's really the location and the scenario where either the angelic is exercising their power against God as king or in favor of God as King in your life, in your stuff, in the details of your life—the seemingly that's his minutia—but there's nothing with minutiae with God, and the competitiveness of Satan, and these two angel armies are waiting for us to say, "Maybe I can't control what comes to my mind, but I have authority." to decide what stays in my mind and what remains in my mind. And Jesus made it very clear. Whatever I bind on earth, this is the level of authority, think about this, is bound in heaven. And so if I discover that these um, let me just give you an example: of, of feelings of uh, bitterness against some some member of the family who uh, humiliated me, and you know the last Thanksgiving or something, and Aunt So and So, Aunt I call her Aunt Tilly, and um, and I just cannot come to forgive her for humiliating me in front of the whole uh, uh, family, and I'm embittered toward her. Well, Paul says. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, lest a root of bitterness form in you. Well, where does that root begin to form? It begins in this competition of who's going to influence man's authority on which way he's going to go. Is he going to obey God? Is he going to, ha- is he going to be obedient to God's word that says um, in the Lord's Prayer, And forgive us our trespasses. Here's the second part as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's how you get rid of the word of bitterness. You can take your hurt emotions to the foot of the cross. Okay. Jesus understood what it was (laughs) like to be humiliated. Okay. Jesus knew what rejection was like. Okay. Um, But you take those hurt feelings, which are genuine, and you give them over to Him and say, I'm putting this at the foot of the cross. I am not going to harp on this. I'm not going to allow it to remain in my mind. I am not going to let it stay there and fester and, in essence, become something deadly because the enemy is on the other side saying, yeah, but you were a victim. You didn't do anything wrong. And, well, that may be all true but we're not victims when it comes to spiritual warfare. We are more than conquerors in Christ, and we are to take command of of every thought. This is what 2 Corinthians 10:5 talks about. It talks about in Second uh, Corinthians 10:3 talks about hey, we don't warfare, we don't conduct war um, in 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 an earthly way because we're competing against uh powers and principalities and rulers of the air who want to influence our authority as human beings so they mess with our mind. And that's why 2 Corinthians uh, 10, I think it's 2 Corinthians 10, 3, yeah, verse 5 is so important. And it says, taking every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. And the Jewish Bible, um, uh, David Stern Jewish Study Bible says, taking every thought captive and making your thoughts listen, obey Yeshua. That's the Jewish name for Jesus. Make your thoughts obey him. Wow. Well, when do I do that? Two seconds at a time. Pretend you have a remote control in your hand, and you're going to push the pause button. And when you push a pause button, and you're watching a DVD, that imagery on the on the on the screen uh, goes into a freeze frame. It's stagnant. It can't move until you push the button again. And that allows you. It's like turning on the light when you have darkness in your mind that's trying to, you know, get you really angry at Aunt Tilly and saying, "I will never forgive her." In fact, you're going to make a vow to that effect. You're so angry about it and so hurt. And the minute you push that pause button and you take that imagery and you go to God and say, Father, I have this, I have this reenactment of, of, of this plane over and over how I was humiliated at the dinner table. Did you, did you just give me this thought, Father? Did you just give me this thought? Now, you listen for the Holy Spirit's response, and he'll tell you whether Father God gave you that thought. In all likening, if, if it, what's the fruit that it produces? Does it produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and, um, and gratitude? And <laughs> if it's not any of the fruits of the Spirit, it ain't from God. And it's probably not coming from you because it's not a neutral thought like, well, do, do I, here's, a, here's one of your thoughts, neutral. Do I have Cheerios or Wheaties for breakfast? Do I wear green socks or red socks with this outfit? I mean, that's pretty neutral. But when it's producing uh, a reenactment of hurt and, and, and bitterness and lack of forgiveness, you know it doesn't come from God. And he'll tell you. He said, you're my, you're my son, you're my daughter. Would I, as your loving father, give you this thought, which is basically ruining your day, and, and you can't stop this broken record? of this reenactment, but the authority we have in 2 Corinthians ten three through 5 it says taking every thought captive. We can bind that thought, and we can break its power over us. We can cancel it because we have the authority to cancel Satan's attempt at power over our mind, and we can rebuke it you can cancel it and rebuke it and say you have no authority over over me satan i am not agreeing to participate in this pity party with you in my mind you have no authority over me i forgive aunt tilly cuz that's what scripture says to do so i can get out of spiritual emotional jail that you're trying to put me in and you Keep replaying this thing over and over and over. Well, that's their job, is to torment us. But we have the authority to say, we're not playing your game. Nice try. Get out, in Jesus' name. And then we replace it with the truth of God. You got—you can't leave the house swept clean. You've got to replace it with God's truth. So um, Satan gain justification for his original rebellion. And um, the author said, um, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? He was basically saying, you know, what? did, did the rebellion happen first uh, per Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, where they rebelled against God and then they were thrown down to earth? And the author said, well, there may be another scenario where actually— um, Maybe Satan tempted Adam and Eve first as a means of gaining authority for his own spiritual rebellion in heaven. If Adam and Eve rejected God as king, then he, Satan, could do the same thing under the auspices of their position as kings of the earth and said, ha, they rebelled against you, now I can rebel against you um, as a fallen angel. I don't know which... Which came first. I don't think it really makes that much difference, but um, the reality of this whole scenario is that one of the most important reasons of why we have to obey God is being so important. Um, The author says it really doesn't have anything to do with initial salvation. That's basically being, is being justified by a matter of faith and trust. But here's where it It matters. Rather, obedience is the means by which the accuser of the brethren is finally silenced. He's shut down. If Satan has nothing with which to accuse human beings, guess what? He has no authority to inflict any harm on human beings. Wow. Think about that. Our obeying God shuts down Satan's access to authority over us. We will wrap this one up. We're almost finished on this one. And we will see you next week. I hope and pray that you have many simple truth moments in the ensuing week. May God richly bless you. See you next week. God bless Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit SimpleTruthMinistries.net. That's SimpleTruthMinistries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at Earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's Truth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal is simple truth moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m., right here on K Praise.